Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front, and they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company, and if you enter the code ZIBBY, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. I'm really excited to be interviewing Mary-Laura Philpott. Mary Laura is the author of I Miss You When I Blink, a memoir written in essays, which was chosen as number one on the Indie Next list by booksellers nationwide. She also wrote and illustrated Penguins with People Problems. She has contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, and many others. She is the founding editor of Musing, the online magazine of Parnassus Books, and is the Emmy-winning co-host of the literary interview show A Word on Words on Nashville Public Television. She currently lives in Nashville with her family. So welcome, Mary Laura. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. This is great fun. Um, We met at the LA Times Book Festival when I basically accosted you on stage, if you remember, and I was like, you have to be on my podcast. (laughs) I was just trying to think back to where we met. I was like, I know it was was an event and you came up after and I... I traveled so much so quickly that some things started to run together, and I couldn't picture the place. And that's where it was. That's where it was, <laughs> which was great. In LA. I know. That was a fun panel. That was great. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was a good group. We had, For people who are listening, we had Heather Haverleski, who is one of my favorite essayists of all time. Um, Kathy Kuzler. She wrote, she's so good. She wrote, What If This Were Enough? And then... Um, Lori Gottlieb, who wrote Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which came out the same day my book did. And then Kathy Guyswhite, like Kathy the cartoon, the real person Kathy was there. That was so fun. That was so fun. And Kathy and Lori um, both are on my podcast also. I'm like going, going through the panel. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. That was great. Um, so your book, a collection of essays slash memoir called Different Things in Different Places, is fantastic and like I felt like it was so relatable. I felt like I could have written this whole, like you were like, we're in my mind. So anyway, could you please (laughs) tell listeners what it's about and what inspired you to write it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's, I always feel like I should say at the beginning what it is. So I Miss You When I Blink is a memoir told in essays. So you could pick it up and put it down at any point and any single essay would make sense on its own. But they're arranged in such a way that if you read it from start to finish in order, there's a narrative arc to how these stories stack up. So you kind of see at the beginning, like how I became a baby perfectionist as a child, and then quickly how I took those tendencies into adulthood and tried to apply them to real life, as if there is any such thing as getting a right answer to anything in adulthood. Um, You see me trying again and again to get things right, to be the best student, the best worker, the best friend, the best artist, the best parent, everything. Because there's something, as I figured out in writing these essays, there's something a little broken in my brain that tells me if I can just do the best job, if I can do the best at everything, I can earn the love of everyone around me and I can finally feel some kind of peace. So some of these stories that I, that Wait, I tell so, in these so essays. So that's not true? It does not work that way? <laughs> Are you sure? Trying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just keep trying. I'm like, this will be the time yeah. I get it. So so some of the stories in these essays are funny um, because obviously perfectionism just lead, does lead to some hilarious mistakes. Some are more sad, um, but it all kind of reaches a climax when I get 
really depressed and I have to figure out how to move forward and maybe learn to let go of living my life like a checklist. Um, so that's what it's about. That's what it is. The title, which I love, and I can say I love it because I didn't make it up. It's borrowed from something my son said when he was little. And now he's huge. He's 16 and he's like a foot taller than me. But when he was six years old, um, Oh, and I feel like I should give a disclaimer too, because whenever I say this title came from something my son said when he was six, people are like, oh, that's so sweet. And they assume it's going to be a book about like raising young children, like a really sweet motherhood book. And that is not what this book is. That does come up in the book, but it's not a like, don't go to this book and go, here's, (laughs) she told me this would be about raising young children. That's not what it's about. But um, when he was six, and I was whatever age I was when he was six. I was working. I was a freelance writer then. And I was sitting in my office in our home, working, working, working toward a deadline. And he wanted to go to the park. And so I made this deal with him and said, all right, we can go to the park when we both finish our writing. So here's a notepad for you. You write some stuff. And I'm going to keep writing. I was writing like a brochure about suitcases or something. This <laughs> is when I was a freelance copywriter. So something really glamorous. Um, and so he starts kind of chitter chattering to himself while he's writing on his little notepad. And I hear him say, I miss you in the sink and I miss you in a skating rink and I miss you when I blink. And it just caught my ear and I turned and I was like, wait, what'd you just say? And he said, I miss you when I blink. And he was so proud because he had gotten my attention. And when we left to go to the park that day, I took his little scrap of paper and I stuck it up on the wall of my office and it stayed there for years. So every day when I would walk down to my little basement where my office was, I would walk past this piece of paper that said, I miss you when I blink. Um, and I was, a, I was in a phase of life in those years where time had started to feel like it was speeding up. And I was really aware of how I was getting older and my kids were getting bigger. My parents were aging and it felt like it was all just moving too quickly. And at the same time, I was also starting to feel kind of unsettled, like the daily life I was living didn't quite fit me anymore. And I, you know, I being that checklist person, I had made all the steps that led me to where I was. And I'd been very happy in that life for a while, but I was feeling pulled towards something else. And as I tried to consider who I wanted to be going forward, I was also doing a lot of looking back at who I had been and how I had gotten there. And all of that is what I'm writing about in this book. And so that little phrase that was so cute that I stuck on my wall, that stuck in my head for all these years, that at first I just loved because it was cute, came back to me when I was thinking about titles for this book. And I thought, that's it. The I miss you part gets at the sort of I'm I miss myself and I miss who I intended to be. And then the, when I blink sort of gets at how time goes by so fast, you know, every time you blink, it's like a year or two years or a decade is just going by. So I took this adorable thing that he said as a six year old and I applied it to my, (laughs) my memoir about being a frustrated, depressed, middle-aged woman. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. I'm going to follow my kids around with a little notebook and be like, my title is going to come out of whatever you say. I'm going like, to have like a sticky note fest on my wall with everything my six-year-old says for the next year. I'll be like, she said I could do it this way. <laughs> I'm telling you, they say amazing things and they have just enough nonsense still left in their language that their language is really sort of unintentionally poetic. So I used to write down all the things they said. I've got a little book in my house of um, 
just sayings that they said when they were teeny little. And when you go back and look at them, I wrote them down because they were cute, but they're also really profound. Yeah. You know, the stuff that children observe in the world and how they say it. So true. Um, One of the things I was struck with, with a few of your essays was how you felt that you almost didn't deserve to be unhappy in in parts of your life. You have an essay called Everything to be Happy About, another essay called Ungrateful Bitch. And you write, you, you know, you wrote even, I didn't want to tell anyone I was unhappy because it didn't make sense. And I like completely, I wrote this essay on Medium a while ago called Too Lucky to Cry on Easter. I'm like, how could I cry? I'm so lucky. What do I have to cry about? Like no one would understand. How can I feel sad? But you really tap into that. And you you talk about um, at the end, you say, even the people who have no terrible, obvious burden to carry can find themselves staggering under the weight of a dull, constant dread. It doesn't add up, but it's true. So talk talk to me about all that. I mean, you get it. I get it. (laughs) Sitting there at, you know, your beautiful Easter with the beautiful, brightly colored eggs and everything is good and everything is great. And oh my God, you're not feeling great and good. And what, you know, when you have that feeling of like, everything is good around me, why don't I feel good? Am I broken? What is wrong with me? Like, am I the most ungrateful person ever? Um, The world, like the world we live in right now is a little bit of a garbage fire. Things are a mess all over the place. and. I often find myself feeling like the world is such a garbage fire that where I should be putting my time and attention, if I'm a good person, is on trying to fix all the things that were wrong. I need to solve climate change and I need to fix the healthcare system. I need to figure out what to do about all the horrors that so many human beings are enduring all over the world. Those are the things that are important. You know, it can't possibly be important that I, a healthy, financially stable woman in a safe, clean home full of healthy, living family members, it can't possibly be important that I feel mental or emotional distress and that I've worked myself into a state of frustration or exhaustion. I shouldn't think about how I want to live my life in a more meaningful way because some people don't even have clean water. I sh- you know, I shouldn't want to find mental and emotional peace because some people don't even have peace, peace. Like they don't live in a place that has peace. And like you said, there's a whole chapter in this book called Ungrateful Bitch, because at my lowest points, that is what I would call myself. I would look around at my life and go, I have everything to be happy about, and I'm not happy. I am an ungrateful bitch. And what I had to continually remind myself of, what I was working through in writing this book, and what I still have to remind myself of, and and I remind friends of this. I remind readers of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I wrote a, um, an advice column the other day for Bustle where this was the advice that I was giving the person who wrote in. You can care about lots of things. You can, you can care about the big important things in the world and your own life and your own mental and emotional peace. You don't, it's not either or. It's not like either I care about the things I should care about or I try to get my life right. So you, you can care about the big things that matter And you can look at your own life and say, okay, I think it's time for a change here and I need to pay attention to what I'm doing. But I also think that beating yourself up about it is unproductive too, right? I feel like it's such a a vicious cycle, right? Like I shouldn't feel bad. Now I feel bad and I feel guilty. Right. (laughs) Now I feel bad and I feel feel selfish and I feel this or, you know. Right, right. And when you feel ashamed of your own feelings, then you lock them up because you're like, oh, I can't let anyone know I feel this way. 
then you feel lonely right. because you're trapped inside your own brain and loneliness compounds every problem. And, so, and you've said you really enjoy writing, like sort of analyzing the difference between being alone and feeling lonely and how sometimes it yeah. happens at different places and times. And Yeah, you can feel really, really lonely in a room full of people. And you can feel really not lonely when you're by yourself. I love being by myself. <laughs> I mean, you and I are both in a phase of life where we don't get as much time by ourselves. Yeah, I'm like, oh, by myself. Can, so. Heaven, no. <laughs> yeah. I think I've been in my apartment by myself like once for five minutes and I like didn't know what to do yeah. with myself. Yeah. <laughs> weird. A quiet house is a really weird, weird thing. <laughs> you also wrote this, um, it's a an essay in your book and also in the New York Times called A Letter to the Type A Person in Distress. Um, another thing that I felt you wrote to me. Um, at the end, so you say to the perfectionist, after you say like, you know, stop with your to-do list and you're color-coded and now you've done them in three different ways. Now you have a pie chart and, you know, just, you know, you say you wish you could take a break from carrying everything. It's all so heavy. You are so fucking tired. I know. And I know you can't help it. I know how much you need to hear this. I can never hear it enough. That was not the best summary of that article. But um, <laughs> what was the response to this essay like from readers? Because you basically hit the nail on the head for anyone who's just trying to go, go, go and like be the class mom and get everything right and, um, you know, have everybody's socks aligned or, you know, whatever it is and just like not let any balls drop and that you are finally yeah. telling people like, it's okay. Yeah. I Oh my gosh. I love doing that piece live at readings, there's always somebody, like when I look up at the end, there's always somebody in the crowd sitting there with tears, just silently streaming down their face. Um, you know, somebody who just gets it and is like, oh, that's me. And then there's always somebody with like a great, really loud laugh, you know, that just kind of comes out of nowhere. There's a line in that essay about how if you're, if you're a really work-driven person and you hold yourself to really high standards in your work, but you have to work alongside people who aren't that way and maybe they cut corners or they don't really work with great integrity, it can just drive you absolutely mad. And I'd say something like you, you get to the point where you just want to throw your laptop at someone's face, which is a ridiculous line, but you can hear it in the laughs in the crowd who those people are who have had that exact feeling because they're just like, ha! <laughs> you're like, I didn't know other people wanted to throw their laptops at someone's face. You know, I don't, I don't really believe that all people fall into two categories, a type A and a type B. I think like most human tendencies, it lies on the spectrum, but I borrowed those labels for the purposes of highlighting some behaviors. And it's been really funny to hear people who do identify as type A go, oh my gosh, this is me. How did you get in my head? And for the people who don't identify that way to go, oh, you know, I always thought type A people were just annoying. <laughs> but now I suddenly kind of understand why they do the things they do. It's the same reason anybody does the things they do. It's because somewhere deep in our wiring, we believe we have to do whatever it is we do to prove we're worthy of love or that we're even worthy to exist. And you said also about this whole type A nature, um, you would, uh, Ann Patchett, who owns Parnassus Books, co-owned, said that part of the type A nature is, no, you said to her that it's sensing a ticking clock in everything you do. Basically, you're always counting down. How do you, and she actually always. like gave you this pretty blue hourglass that you posted on with along with the article, right? It was that, or was that just oh, an image, yeah. right? Anyway, I was wondering, do yeah. you use the, the hourglass to remind you 
of the time passing? Or did that whole thing just like, you know, come and go and you never thought about it again? It's so funny. So she gave me the hourglass early on when I was writing the book and, and she was asking how it was going. And I was like, it's, it's going as hard as writing always goes. But one of the additional difficulties I was having was finding big blocks of time to write. Because when I sit down to write, there's this, there's this whole chunk of time where I just sort of stare out the window for a while and like remove myself from the rest of the world to get to the mental place where I have to be to write. That takes some time. And then I actually start writing. So I need big blocks of time. And I was kind of complaining about that. And uh, she gave me this hourglass and she was like, so here's what you do. You just flip this hourglass over and you tell your kids, don't bother me until this hourglass is empty. And that's how you make writing time, which is hysterical because of course kids don't really work that way. But later when she had written, read the finished book and she read about how obsessed I am with time running out, and how that gives me such terrible anxiety. She said, oh my God, I can't believe I gave you an hourglass. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I love it. It's beautiful. It's a lovely hourglass. I don't really use it to like flip it over and, and measure time, but it is, it's beautiful. It's in my office. I think it's, I think the time running out thing is just a natural part of growing up. Every year passes faster than the year before it. And mortality starts to feel more and more real. So the older I get, the more I have that feeling like I got to make time count. I know. I feel the same way. I like get anxious when I flip it over in Pictionary, you know, those little counters, right? I'm like, "Ah!" anyway. (laughs) Uh, And I feel like at this age, like in my forties, like all the things I want to do, I'm like, I'm going to run out of time to do all these things. When am I going to fit it in? Like how many more years do I have? How many more vacations can I take? Like, right. There are, it's so funny how there are these milestones or these milestone years that seem to happen. Get into your forties is one of them because I think your thirties just fly by in a, I mean, I shouldn't say your thirties for me, at least my thirties flew by in a flash. And I kind of looked up like, Whoa, I got, I got, I've got some adulthood left here, but I need to pay attention to how I use it. I've also noticed um, just in responses that I've gotten from readers and, and messages that I've gotten on social media from readers, there's something about the 30th birthday these days that is really throwing people for a loop. A lot of women in particular are looking up at 30 and going, oh, when did this get here? And having kind of a, a panic about time. Okay, well, that's good. It's not just in our 40s then. It's okay, okay good. I feel better. <laughs> Um, you, um, you're also, in addition to this fantastic book, you're, you write for the Parnassus books, um, musing literary site. You host a show, do you still do this? A war on words on Nashville public television, which I watched one that you did with Danny Shapiro, who's one of my favorite authors in it now, a friend. And it was so good. Um, this is like my dream to have a show like this too. Tell me about how you balance all these things. Tell me a little more about musings and about musing and also about uh, your TV show and how you're yeah. trying to access writers and sort of bring them to everybody. Yeah. So it, it I didn't set out to go, I'm going to have multiple jobs <laughs> within the same industry and be a total workaholic. It just sort of happened. Um, so at Parnassus, at the bookstore, musing is our digital magazine. And that's been, running that site has been my job for the past five years at Parnassus. I created the site so that the store would have a way to kind of extend its footprint beyond just the shop floor and a way to amplify the voices of all the people who come in and out of those doors, the authors, the booksellers who are all so smart and such big readers, Um, readers and customers. I wanted to find a way to share 
the Parnassus experience with people who aren't here in Nashville. Um, so we publish a piece every week, sometimes two, and sometimes it's an author interview or a book excerpt or some kind of little fun behind the scenes look at the bookstore life. But my, my favorite pieces, the ones where I think it really, really shines are once a month we do staff recommended reading lists. And it's basically, we round up all the booksellers. It's my job to nag them to do this. And they write little blurbs about their favorite new books that are out. And those are by far our most popular, our most popular pieces. Um, so that's that job. And then for Nashville Public Television, I'm a host of a show called A Word on Words. And I'm actually a co-host. There's another host too. Her name is JT Ellison. She writes thrillers. She lives here in Nashville. Um, and that's a fun job because it is actually produced entirely by Nashville Public Television. So I am the quote unquote talent, which means it's my job to read the books and show up and do the interviews, but I'm not in control of every little bit. I don't have to do the scheduling. I, you know, I'm not involved in the editing. And the neat thing about that show is we record about 25 minutes of conversation, but what you actually see in the show is only, I think they're like four minutes long or three and a half minutes long. It's an interstitial, which means it's a tiny little show that comes on in between other shows on public television. On public TV, as you probably know, there aren't, you don't have ads cutting into your shows all the time like you do on network television. And so if you have, say, a 22-minute show airing in a 30 minute block, they have this chunk of time to fill before it's time for the next 30 minute block. And so they fill that with original programming. So we're the show between the shows, which is kind of fun. And I don't know how I balance it. <laughs> like when people go, how do you do it all? I'm like, hey, it looks a little bit different every day. Like I, the nice thing about the show is that we do 15 episodes a season and I only shoot half. So that's seven, that's seven of those. So those are spread out. Musing is obviously, a, you know, rolling every week all the time. And that is a lot. I don't know yet if I'll stay involved at that level with musing or if we may need to move some, move some things around within the store. I want to keep contributing to it. I don't know. I'm, I've been traveling a lot this year and I'm going to keep traveling for the book, which is wonderful. And I want to be able to do it. But I want to I don't want to do any job that I can't do well. As you know, that is my... <laughs> <laughs> that is my problem. So I've got I've got to talk to the store and kind of figure that out. We we may move some things around and have somebody else kind of run, run the run the site on an ongoing basis, and maybe I just contribute something once a month. I don't know. It's a lot. Yeah, but it's all fun. <laughs> Does Parnassus still have the bookmobile? I saw pictures of that. Yeah, that is amazing. The, the cute little blue bookmobile. It has been doing really fun work with schools. The the bookseller who runs it, Kevin. Um, does outreach to schools and book fairs and things. And, and kids love it. Kids are also the perfect customers for a bookmobile because they can stand up inside it at full height. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure time. I could probably do it too. But yes, yeah, I bet most kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyone who will listen or who cares, I, if they ever ask me my next like dream trip, it is going to Nashville where I've never been. And I'm like, I want to go to Parnassus Books. I want to go to Blackberry Farm. Like that is my number one oh my gosh, on the list. Yeah. <laughs> so, Blackberry is so nice and fancy. Uh, well, maybe I'll go for lunch or something. I don't know. Anyway. There you go. 
Uh, but I'm like keeping an eye on the events, so maybe I could tie it to oh, yeah. with some great authors coming who I love or something. There you go. Um, but that's so exciting. You also have written a lot about book clubs. So you wrote a piece in the Oprah magazine, oh, the Oprah magazine, um, which was great. And you wrote how sometimes the magic of books comes after you finish reading them and how it connects you to other people. And I just wanted you to talk more about that because I completely agree with that. Oh, yeah. Well, I can see why you would agree with that. I mean, that's like what that's what you do is you're connecting people in conversation about books after they've read books. Yeah. So hopefully I, I mean, hopefully I enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm like you have always been a big reader. I love books. I love the private connection that happens between the words on the page and my own mind. Like that's its own relationship between a reader and a book. But then there is this whole other conversation and this whole other level of appreciation that happens after you've read a book, when you go talk about that book with other people. And that particular issue of Oprah's Magazine was a tribute to book clubs. And so what I was saying in that essay is, you know, whether whether you have a formal book club, like a regular book club that sits down every month and talks about the same book, or you just have a group of friends or a group of internet friends, whatever, who discuss books, connecting with each other over a book is a way to connect with each other as human beings. And to live richer lives. So there's a whole, there's just a whole world of appreciation and conversation that happens after the book is over. And when do you find time to read? Oh man, I read, the best time to read is when I, I can't be doing anything else. Cause you know, I like to always be doing something productive. So on a plane, in a waiting room, in the car, you know, there's this weird time in our evenings right now between like when the kids tell me they're going to bed and when they actually do go to bed and they're actually marching around the house, like taking their medicine and looking for their sock. It's like a half hour every night of mild background chaos and nothing else can really be happening. And I just sit on the sofa and read and they'll swing by and go, mom, I can't find this piece of paper or whatever. I'm like, all right, great. Like that time every night, I read whenever I can't be doing something else. That's what I think is some of the, that's like the best part about reading. It's like the only thing I do where I'm not totally distracted and I can't multitask and my brain can just like slow down. (laughs) It's a good feeling. I was just talking to, um, I interviewed somebody who wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone about how we can be addicted to our phones. And And she was saying, you know, how people can use the phone as sort of a self medication in a way, right? And like, and then I was like, oh, well, I read. And then I was like, oh, no, maybe I'm, like, addicted to reading. Like, maybe I'm, like, dependent on, this is probably not good. This is, like, another issue, but I'll just, like, keep this under wraps. (laughs) No. Well, the good thing is, like, a book is not doing, I know, I'm not, I know, I'm setting you free from that. You you. you are not, not, yeah, you're good. You're good. (laughs) Um, So what is coming next? Are you going to compile, are you writing more essays with the goal of compiling them? Are you, and you also wrote, I didn't even talk about penguins with people problems, which you wrote and illustrated. Oh yeah. That was my crazy little, my funny little first book that was such a fluke that it was never, it wasn't like I intended to write a book. I was just drawing weird cartoons and putting them on the internet and, and a publisher called and said, can we make that a book? And then I, I it was like a total backwards backwards from how the way book deals usually work. Like someone just came to me and said, I want to make that a book. And then I had to go, they were like, put us on the phone with your agent. And I was like, great, I'll be right back. And I was like, I gotta find an agent. <laughs> it's actually a delightful way to find an agent when you already have a book deal in hand. Yeah, because, I bet. <laughs> you know, 
you're like, I just need you to negotiate this for me. Um, that came out in 2015 and it's still out there. It's, it's still selling. It's just a cute little happy animal cartoon book. It's so different. It's so different from I miss you when I blink. And when people have said, Oh, as I miss you when I blink your first book, I'm like, well, it's not technically my first book, but yeah, it kind of is. Cause it's, it's, it's the first book like this that I have done. Once you had your agent, did anyone ever say to you, because I've heard that it's not as easy to sell collections of essays as it is for full-on memoirs. But I was like, see, mm-hmm. she did this and it worked. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Um, wh- no, no? everybody says that. And it's, it's not, look, it's not crazy. I mean, I, I love essay collections. I, like as a reader, I love Me them. Too. And I see, I see readers come into the bookstore all the time and buy them. But I do understand, like, from a business perspective, if you're just talking about popular commercial genres, essays are not at the top of the list. Like, it's, they're not the hottest selling thing there is. And I think, you know, when people, readers in general think, oh, I got to grab a book to take to the beach, they're typically thinking a novel or some really juicy nonfiction thing that's on a particular topic. So I know that in general, the people in the world are not walking around going, got to get my hands on a hot new essay collection. But just because it's not the most popular thing does not mean that it's impossible. Um, but it is, it's tricky. It's not, it's not the easiest thing to sell. And I, and I will say it's also not, at least in my case, and I can't speak for everybody. It was not an easy thing for me to try to sell before I had written it. So I had a couple of false starts in this process. Like at one point I thought, I'm going to write a proposal and I'm going to sell this book based on the proposal and, and get a book deal. And then I will finish writing it, which is not uncommon at all in nonfiction. That's really very common. But my proposal drafts were just bad. They were bad because I am the type of writer who does not know what I am writing until I have written it. And I could not summarize a book that didn't exist. You know, there's a part of the proposal where you're supposed to go chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I couldn't tell you, I couldn't say what the chapters were going to be because I hadn't sat down to write them yet. And I also couldn't say what the overall message or vibe or narrative of the book was because I hadn't written it and I didn't know. So that was a period of frustration that I went through where I was like, I can't, I can't write a proposal. I'm never going to sell this book. And once I let go of that and sort of set myself free from that expectation and said, okay, I clearly can't summarize a book I haven't written yet. The only way to do this is to just go write this thing. And I took a couple years and I just went off and I wrote the whole damn book. And then, then the proposal wrote itself because I'd written the book and I knew what it was. And it's very easy to summarize essays you've already written. And it's very easy to look at a collection or a memoir and go, oh, this is what this is about. And then it sold really fast. So, you know, I will say selling a collection of essays may be tougher if you don't know what they're about yet. (laughs) Good, good advice. Excellent advice. Um, Do you want to write another book? I do. I really, really do. I'm so mad that my, that my book that's out now can't just write the next book. (laughs) I wrote you, now you write the next one. Like that's the tough thing. It never gets any easier. So I'm back to square one of like, what, what do I want to write about? Let me try to figure out what that book will be. And I know 
darn well that I, I won't know until I've written it. So I've got to, I've got to try to set aside some time to write. And it's frustrating right now because, um, there's just not enough hours in the day and I want to be doing what I'm doing right now, which is traveling a lot and talking to people about the book. But I also know that that eats up some of the time I would use for writing. So I'm telling myself that that is okay, that I'm not writing again yet. It will happen. I need to live in this moment. You know, yeah. I, I will release you from that guilt as you have released me from my own guilt. There is plenty of time to write another book. Thank you. Yeah, that you can just live in the moment of this uh, amazing other book that just came out and is so fantastic. So, um, well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books yeah. and sharing your all of your life with listeners. <laughs> thank you for, for all that you do to help people. You help, you're a good matchmaker. You help people find the book that they need when they need it. So I appreciate you doing that for this one. Oh, thank you. All right. Take care. (laughs) Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.